So whenever you apply a stereotype to a group that you've been able to define, mm -hmm. you decide who has voice and who doesn't have voice. And that's, I think, a little more scary than anything. And I, I don't know that any part of the spectrum has control of that. Some say that we've entered a novel period in political discourse, and people are wondering what the consequences of these developments will be. In this episode, we'll explore that question as well as how the political rhetoric of social justice organizations today compare with similar movements of the 20th century, the consequences of the recent neo-Nazi demonstrations as it relates to the freedom of speech and other topics of interest with Dr. Alan Loudon, a professor and chair of the communications department here at Wake Forest University. I'm your host, Jonathan Tratner, and you're listening to Podcasts at WFU, an educational exploration of hot topics. Jumping right into the discussion, we're going to focus on President Trump and the political rhetoric. We see that he's willing to take issues that require delicacy and collaboration and command them for himself through public opinion. We're about a year into his presidency now, and I guess my question is, how do you think President Trump's rhetoric affects policymaking and public thought? <laughs> Depends who you're asking, doesn't it? It obviously affects everything. Uh, there was a one of our most famous people in political presidential rhetoric studies posted this summer on a on our Facebook site. She says, well, what am I going to do in my class in the fall? Because everything we thought we knew about political communication, presidential rhetoric is not true. And so I, I emailed, I responded to the Facebook with, yeah, you're kind of right. So I'm doing a class this fall at Wake Washington in presidential rhetoric. So my question to the audience is, well, do people actually treat or think of tweets as presidential rhetoric? That's a good question. It's certainly the direction we've seen it turning into with ever more politicians and political activists building on that precedent that President Trump has set. Your, your question's about proportionality at audiences, really, in the mm -hmm. sense that uh, if a president, presidents can command audience, obviously he has that, that down to a fine art. He pretty much is all anyone talks about, and then his antics are a way of keeping that conversation alive. Uh, some people who are, you know, more mournful than others would say we're in a permanent talk show or, or reality TV show. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, does, does that make a difference? I think he is really successful in controlling what we talk about. Now, the proportionality of audience, he obviously suggested in your question that they have to be reasonably polite or appropriate. Mm -hmm. And, of course, those standards are shifting before us, before our very eyes. It's not clear what those things that you can get away with were or were not. So we're kind of getting used to it. Now, there is a proportion, something like about 38% and probably a smaller portion of that, who... It's sort of gospel-like. It's almost like uh, uh, the strongman figure, and anything he says is going to be forgiven and re-explained. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's probably a little bit closer to 48% or something that whatever he does, even if it made sense and they liked it, they would bitch about it. So there's, there's those proportions now. In the political sense, how much weight do you have to have in terms of support to sustain yourself? Because it can get too small. Yeah. 
but it can also get too large where, you get a, where they sort of throw you out. I suppose you'd have an impeachment kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's not clear to me that we're close to those margins on either end at this moment. And what aspects do you think have caught on your attention so far? More specifically, what aspects of President Trump's personality are different in substantial ways than past presidents? <laughs> Well, I suppose uh, the thing that always sticks out to me is I, I, I have real trouble with the politeness factor. I just don't think you treat people that way, and I wouldn't want my friends to do that. That does not mean it's not effective. Uh, I have trouble with people, I think, who are narcissistic, like they cannot understand anything outside of their own realm and importance and place, and they can, almost can't carry on a conversation unless it's about them in some form. He seems to have those tendencies. Which Trump I think does. Are, yes, Trump okay. does, and I, and then, yeah, which is kind of debilitating. At the same time, since he controls the topic, mm-hmm. and since he controls what is talked about, not just in the topic, but kind of how it's talked about, in fact, it does have policy implications. We are considering things like, for example, the tax reform or even the repeal of, of Obamacare had that happened. We're considering things that wouldn't even been on the table in any other administration or any other time. They, they would have been just laughed out of the room. They're taking a serious policy. Is that a fact? I think so. And with regards to the policies that are taking effect here, how is the message conveyed to the general public in a way that contrasts with President Obama from five years ago, President Bush from 10 years ago, President Clinton from 20 years ago, et cetera? Sure. Well, there were senses of what it means to be presidential. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we talked about that during the campaign, and he, he articulated in an unpresidential way how he could be the most presidential of all presidents and how probably only Abraham Lincoln would surpass him in his presidentiality, whatever mm-hmm. that would mean. Yeah. So uh, in that sense, uh, yeah, it's a very different game. Mm-hmm. Just the whole shock troop thing, the fact that you uh, stir the pot continually, inability to leave things alone, go back to him, or divert depending on how you're looking at it. Maybe it's just a diversion and they get away with all kinds of things. Who knows? Depends how clever you want to think he is or how much he's just a man of the moment. Would Bush been different? Yeah. Bush actually, you know, was pretty pretty tame in the last two years of his presidency. He had already been destroyed by the media, if you will, and so it didn't matter, but it actually was pretty good. And Bush the first we look back on fondly now at the time we got down to similar disapproval ratings. And, and Clinton, we were ready to throw him out of office, but he clammed up for seven months, and mm-hmm. all kinds of things happened. So there's always something. There's always something bigger than the last thing. But this is, seems to be fundamentally different. I don't know if it's fundamentally different than an Andrew Jackson or some earlier presidents. It's not fundamentally different than the campaign with Jefferson and Adams for the presidency before 1803, 1800 mm-hmm. maybe. And, and so in that sense, history repeats. So... I, I, I always have this argument, and I'm not sure I'm right. Consider, from this mm-hmm. point of view, that the period in which everybody had propriety, that they did what they should, that they acted presidential, they almost all have. In that period, after World War II, we had three networks. We had Walter Cronkite doing CBS and saying, ending every broadcast with, that's the way it is, and everybody was preaching from the same hymnal. We think of that as normal politics because it was, we worried about, you know, interest rates or the economy and things like that. My goodness. We think of that as normal. I think the political, that that actually that is abnormal. That was the exception. That's the aberration. In terms of a long-term view of politics, 
we always seem shocked that politics is so political. Yeah. I'm not sure why. And do you think President Trump's persona and behavior will have lasting consequences for the office of the president? I don't think I've given that a lot of thought. Every president ends up redefining the presidency. The most obvious political science kind of answer would be, yes, he's going to acquire more power within the executive branch. And it's sort of a trade-off there. Or he's going to make everybody so mad in Congress more powerful in the fact that they will trump him, so to speak. Uh, and what was the question again? The question was whether or not there would be lasting effects on the office of the president, and does it give way to other and perhaps more abrasive candidates in the future? Of course it does. Now, we'd say no. If you ask somebody, here's an example. You ask people whether they like negative political ads, and they will say, oh, no, that's an awful. We, we, we like it when everybody just talks policy and they're civil, and all the candidates say that's what they're doing. We actually like them. Reality TV is watched by somebody. Yeah. The fact that we have game shows and people beat up each other and we have football and everything else. Yeah, there's an entertainment value, which is also part of the human condition. So well, can we ever then go back to just the placid? Probably not. In fact, it's possible that we will demand of the next presidents, we'll demand a, a retrenchment. We'll go back to what looks civil. But we also may want to demand some action and make it interesting. And if somebody's too dull, we wouldn't like that either. And what, what is your definition of dull in that scenario? Um, I guess the definition of dull in a presidency would be one that's relatively invisible. Is there a historical example that kind of embodies that dullness? We've gotten to where it's almost impossible to be invisible. I mean, mm -hmm. you have Chester Arthur and all kinds of presidents that would be in that boat, you know, and you can, James Buchanan, who saw, who Trump, some argues, making a run for being the worst president ever, you know, you get mm -hmm. that kind of rhetoric. By being too dull, we had at the turn of the century and a little after that, you had Teddy Roosevelt and things, we had kind of a long-term debate about what is the role of the presidency. And the presidency was the executive of the nation, the executor, and he was to carry out the laws. The presidency intentionally, the president intentionally didn't talk to the public. They intentionally talked just to the Congress, even gave their message to them in a written form. They intentionally stayed out of the news. They intentionally said it wasn't the government's job to do anything, pretty much, that belonged to the states or the Congress, and they were just to carry out the laws. Then we get a Teddy Roosevelt kind of world in which he says, no, we can go to the public. Let's go beyond to the public, and now everything is public. What that's come to mean is that the mourner-in-chief, mourner in chief, and so they have to oversee our major funerals and everything's televised and they become the economic expert and they become the foreign policy direct negotiator in a lot of cases. In other words, there is a demand side to this, a demand side which says that the public expects the president to do various things. Trump doesn't really have much choice but to get all excited when there's a national uh, snowstorm or hurricane or mm -hmm. whatever, right? Mm -hmm. He doesn't have much choice when a major figure passes. He doesn't have much choice but to comment on virtually everything because the media, because it's stories and people find it interesting, the presidency cannot be invisible anymore by definition of how we play it. It has gone to the public. Originally that was to go past Congress, go over their heads. Mm -hmm. And now it's much more of a case of almost direct communication in which you cut out all the pl other players out, including the media. And to build off that, one perspective is that the process of going to the public has brought not just the president closer to the public, but politicians in general. So I guess, 
One question is, how do you think the rhetoric scene of politicians now affects the attitudes the public has towards elected officials on the whole? Well, okay. And of course, that's a, a total mixed bag. Mm -hmm. The rhetoric of politicians has always been the skill of the rhetoric of ambiguity. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. in one sense, how can you be on both sides of an issue at once, and how can you occupy more political space than you actually occupy, and all that kind of thing, and a good politician can do that. But more fundamentally, politicians are useful, sort of like preachers are, and sometimes teachers or any other kind of opinion leader. They're useful in those moments of uncertainty because their job is then to define what's happening for the public. One of the reasons the president has to speak is not because they say something different than anybody else would, but because they say it and for they give us place, condition, understanding of what's going on. Presidents are particularly useful in stressful times of high un uncertainty, and they tend to come into those moments and reduce the tension and to say it's going to be okay. Not so sure about Trump. He may use it for political advantage. Now, it's kind of interesting. It's really hard to measure this because there's obviously a large segment of the media and public opinion. Whatever he does will be seen as political. Yeah. He almost cannot. But that's been true for a while of almost all politicians. So we, we tend to find the horse race in the game as entertaining as the policy. And focusing in on President Trump and his unique use of rhetoric, some may argue that it has had spillover effects on the national political stadium. An example of this could be seen on college campuses where we see Milo Yiannopoulos and the incident at UC Berkeley or the response to Charles Murray, who was a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute that faced protests for his past research on campus when asked to talk at Middlebury for different things entirely. And I guess, how could the rhetoric of these situations be seen in the light of the current political stadium? Wow. Is a person's right to speak on campus because they have the right to a platform? Or is a person's right to speak on campus because they have a right to whatever opinion they want? And those are two different things, mm -hmm. but we call both of those free speech. When I was in college, we, there were big movements and serious efforts to shut down speakers. They were to shut down Angela Davis because she was a communist, and they were to shut down the SDS because they were radicals in against the Vietnam War, and they basically it was the right orchestrating a shutdown systematic of speakers on the left coming out of largely the Vietnam protests. Mm -hmm. Most parts of the country held their ground, and those people spoke. Yeah. Now we're in a situation where the shoe's on the other foot. And so we have all the liberals saying that these people shouldn't be listened to because what they say is so vile and uncivil and they actually should not have voice. Now, it's a different question to say whether universities should have to give them a, a platform than saying these people have a right to say whatever they want. Those are slightly different things and we tend to confuse them. I think the universities should give everybody platform, even as I think we should invite the crazies on the right, with the exception of the violent Nazi thing, that's maybe a little, we could, we could do a safety thing. The way universities are regulating this is they're just increasing the cost of having anybody until people can't bring them in. Mm -hmm. So that's their way of answering this and quelling the, the, the particular demands. But I'm also distressed by the, by the left who says you don't have a right to speak because you don't speak the truth. 
Yeah. And whoever knows what that is, the truth, at any given time, they're more, more insightful than I am. And I think truth in terms of a free speech thing comes from a debate. It comes from the public discussion. It comes from the public forum, in a sense, where people can sort of sort through this. We always underestimate the public. They tend to, over time, across things as these are discussed, pretty much get it right, at least in the sense of what they can live with. I think it's interesting, though, because Unopolis is more of a controversial figure in the sense that he's someone who likes to incite controversy wherever he goes regardless. But Murray, he's an academic. He's a PhD scholar. He's published books that people have reviewed and cited. So how would that reflect our ethic of discourse? How unfaithful are we to that given this demonstrated lack of adherence to hearing the other side and listening to what they have to say? I had a seminar and political advertising for graduate seminar and pretty much they were what you expect of young graduate students they were all fairly liberal and they knew that these people who spoke differently than them i.e. Trump were evil what I discovered when we pushed the buttons a little bit is that none of them have ever heard him speak they'd never heard a full speech they never heard the part that's a little charming on occasion they never heard the appeal from a point of view but they weren't interested in knowing that because it was wrong and it wasn't worth knowing. Well, if you start the discussion there, that's pretty well closes it. Now, the fellow who comes and is a little flamboyant and he says things he shouldn't say just to get press, right? And I can never remember his name. I'm sorry. Uh, help me out here. The... Yiannopoulos? Yeah, Yiannopoulos. He's, he's kind of fun. I saw him on a Mar show. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he, yeah, he's a little over the top, but I thought the flamboyancy and the sort of in-your-face thing and the discussion they had I found pretty fun and pretty interesting and not without substance. But he's been dismissed as just sort of a, you know, a grandstander and so he's not worth listening to. The other one's a more serious case because you had a case where he purported to have ideas that the audience found unacceptable. That's fine. There should have been discussion of that. Should he have been invited? Probably because he's you know, published in research and has real ideas. Should those be engaged? Sure, they should be engaged. What happened in that instance is it becomes politicized to make a point for a larger audience in a larger context than his research. This becomes a public protest of silencing just because they don't happen, and not because of what he's saying almost, that's the excuse, but it's really about a larger political context and capturing ground there. And don't get me wrong, these were, these were liberals, and so they were shutting it down, and they shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong in this sense, because conservatives would be just as happy to shut down discussion. And part of the reason we're having this problem on campuses of discussion is because they're trying to bring in speakers to show how mistreated the conservatives are to shut down what they quote-unquote are the liberal faculty. That seems to me pretty much the same thing. Whoever's tried to quell the other person's speech and make it illegitimate is kind of what's going on here. It's a contest of legitimacy who has not, not only not the right to speak in a literal sense, but who has the right to be heard. And, and that's what I saw happening at the, at the New England thing, and that's kind of what I see happening with Milo as well. Interesting. And to build off the right to be heard, there is a new voice that is coming up. One that, while some say has been prevalent before, was not necessarily in the public's eye. And that's the voice of the neo-Nazis and white supremacists, such as those who marched in Charlottesville. 
So I'm interested in your views on these groups and the attention they have received recently. Some may say that there have been these ideas in American society forever, and more common today, there has been a pushback against them, especially now as they've become more sensationalized in the popular media. Is this something new, or is our treatment of these ideas and groups new? What, what seems to be new in the particular environment now is because the riot in, at University of Virginia was on every television. I was flying back from Montana, I remember, and I saw this in Chicago airport, and the crowds around the TVs were quite amazing. What people were saying, somehow it touched a nerve uh, to see this riot in the street at what we would think of as a predominantly privileged school uh, with predominantly privileged kids, and we're seeing this going on, and people are watching the police beat them up and all that kind of thing. Now, I don't know if that's what actually happened, but that's what we thought we were watching. It's the media's portrayal of the events. Yeah, yeah, and of course, they always go for the jugular in terms of the conflict and the most startling picture and stuff, because that's their job. They're not complaining about that. In that instance, the distinction between what is free speech matters. First of all, you give these people an audience. Are you complicit? Or if you don't give them an audience, are you deciding ahead of time who gets to be heard? Is it the university's obligation to provide a space for speech? Or is it just the university's obligation to allow, you know, to sort of encourage speech and let them have a thing? I don't know. It seems to me that universities probably have a right to say, no, this person is over the top. There's got to be some normative standards on which the society revolves around. At the same time, that threshold and that bar should be dang high, and it should be evenly applied. And the fact that we have a group, there's a, on both sides, there's a whole group of people that would shut everybody else down because they're right. Yeah. And uh, my experience in life is when I find the person who knows they're right, I know I got a problem. Yeah. And what, what consequences, like, for our nation as a whole might the prevalence of these ideologies we've seen uh, in Charlottesville bring? Well, what we have is we tend to have a back and forth, and the, the, the argument right now is they're a little more legitimated because in the argument, and that's also a political argument, they're legitimated because Trump exists, therefore these people exist, yeah. and they would be shouted down otherwise. Largely, they're being shouted down in a, in a real sense, and so that, that becomes a political angle as well. The uh, more, One more time on your question, yeah, I'll get ahead of myself. Yeah, uh, what consequences on our nation as a whole might be? Oh, yeah. Here, what we forget is that this is not exactly new. Uh, we had our streets full of anarchists blowing up things in the in the streets of the city mm -hmm. and the unions and everything else in the 30s, and we had we had a damn civil war. We're talking yeah. about strife and, and, and disagreement I mean, and, and separatism. My goodness, it's not even close to that. Uh, it We had instances of the Nazis marching in Peoria, and in, in Chicago, Illinois, and people trying to shut them down. This is the, this kind of flavoring of the movement is not terribly new. It just pops up different places. This time it popped up on a campus. And it happened to be in an atmosphere in which we're having arguments about monuments and all these other things. And so it took on other symbolic realities. It's not particularly new. These people are always there. We would go shoot them in the woods with standoffs with the uh, gun protection people mm -hmm. in Idaho and we go oh my but or we'd have a take over the public lands in Oregon I mean these are mm -hmm. not ne necessarily new things yeah and and so I guess because they're not necessarily new things mm -hmm. 
we've seen, as you said, like we had a civil war. <laughs> but there were also multiple campaigns, especially in the 20th century, that revolutionized our society, like feminism and the civil rights movements. So in essence, you've studied the rhetorics of those types of crusades, and I'm curious what comparisons might be drawn to similar messages that are communicated amongst leaders of social justice organizations like Black Lives Matter today. I'm not even sure what I would say on Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, well, see, these things have, have an ebb and flow, and these things become part of the discussion, mm -hmm. and they get sort of worked through in a way. And it's probably not necessarily bad that they reappear occasionally, mm -hmm. that we get this sort of reexamination. I mean, it sort of cleanses the soul and it allows the sort of normative standard or the majority opinion to carry the day in the end. Mm -hmm. uh, and we go through these cycles of some people getting some voice and getting all excited and then we beat them back and away we go. I don't know, in, in social movements, in the civil rights movement, they're, 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 all these movements, the feminist movement, one, two, or three, or whichever one you want to count. All uh, of them? All these movements. What, uh, they sort of took, I'm gonna get in trouble here because people are gonna disagree with this a lot, okay? Mm -hmm. And I, I say it advisedly because I'm not sure I know what I think on it. But all these movements sort of came to roost in the statistical measurement of elections in the last cycle, mm -hmm. in which identity politics, if you will, which is sort of an instantiation of people ought to have value no matter who they are, in clusters, such that identity politics then becomes almost a movement. We should be all concerned about those people who are concerned about their own welfare, which is probably true. We're having a little cycle of it down harassment right now, which mm -hmm. is really fascinating and how that's gonna play out. Anytime you get some kind of voice and power there, there's probably pushback. Yeah. And so we also witness the pushback. And some of this isn't just Trump, and it isn't just that there's a lot of crazies out there and they're getting more popular and popular and there's a lot more of them. It's probably about the same proportionality. And what politics is a symbolic game of dividing those things up proportionally and getting a little bit more or a little less so you have the relative power. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's a symbolic game of, of organizing people in these groups of various sizes so they carry the day. So, for example, I think the... the, the uh, thing in the, the event in Charlottesville mm -hmm. is being portrayed as, oh my God, these awful people are out there, we gotta shut them down. Yeah. When in fact, bringing it to the light of day and making this part of our debate has actually rallied those people who say they should be shouted down in a way that's corrective. Thank you. And I guess building off of that, with the different groups that we see forming in our society, how do you think that plays into stereotyping in the sense of if we group neo-Nazis as a party and say that one group is not good and this other group is good, what consequences might that have? If you can identify whoever's in, the, in a particular group or a stereotype, yeah. Black Lives Matter, if you could identify uh, all uh, African Americans as radical, mm -hmm. and then they don't deserve to be heard. Or if you could identify all these people who are neo-Nazis or have leanings toward we like society like it was, uh -huh. 
as being irrational, unreasonable, then they don't deserve to be heard. So whenever you apply a stereotype to a group that you've been able to define, mm -hmm. you decide who has voice and who doesn't have voice. And that's, I think, a little more scary than anything. And I, I don't know that any part of the spectrum has control of that. In a normal world, the normal political process says what is normal and what is acceptable and what's polite and yep. what, what's reasonable and what's within the bounds. That works pretty well. That works pretty well because it silences anybody who's not in that group and they don't get any attention. Occasionally something bubbles through and they get some attention and then we are, the backlash is almost always stronger than the event. And what role would multiple movements appearing at once have on that? Movements are pretty dang hard to sustain because they aren't one monolith. They are many things. The civil rights movement is probably the most sustained any movement we've had in the country that I can think of right off the top. I hadn't thought this through, so I'm yeah, just making yeah, this up, absolutely. okay, forgive me, but uh, any because, and partly because it is identifiable, it is also true and right, and people, even if they're opposed, can see it, that everybody ought to be treated fair in and a world equal. in which, yeah. you know, fair and equal yeah. as we, as we often run to the Declaration of Independence to All prove. created equal. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I guess that more interesting question from a political communication person would be, how is it and do we risk losing our trump card, sort of like a Bible verse, with the mm -hmm. Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, or that we are a blended society because of immigration, or that's what makes us American, or the fact that you can speak is what makes you American. If we start losing those values because we have succumbed to all these groups trying to shut each other down and mm -hmm. not have voice, then we might have trouble. Yeah, thank you. And, and on the same notion of different groups power playing each other, a lot of people turn to as you just mentioned, the Declaration of Independence and how all men are created equal as justification for everyone having the same right to fill in the blank. Reading about our founding fathers, though, they don't directly mention their thoughts on what exactly all men means. We start with that notion that it's the founding fathers, and so that's a trump card, right? And every yeah. inaugural speech ever talks to the founding fathers as authorization. It's not at all clear that the Founding Fathers thought any of these things that we say. Okay. What's important is that we decided that that's what the Founding Fathers meant and it has political utility today. The fact that we subscribe to all men are created equal, because it sounds eminently reasonable, right? Uh, and it's our experience, our personal lived experience that that's true if we actually know people and we don't stereotype them. Then that's what matters. It doesn't really matter what the Founders thought. It matters what we say the Founders thought that we all agree with. The fact that we have to revisit this all the time to come back to that notion isn't isn't unique throughout our history. And we've had much more repressive periods in our country than we're having now. And we've had much more uh, exclusion of people of all sorts of color and race and preference and everything else. Mm -hmm. We've had, that's been considerably more difficult. We had to go through in the McCarthy era, we had to go through, we're throwing the communists out and we had those witch hunts. So this, this periodic cleansing and witch hunt and going over the top and being corrected is part of history and part of how politics works, and part of how we sort. It doesn't make it good. It should be resisted. We shouldn't go there. It's all nice, and we're all doing kumbaya on the West Coast and the East Coast. That's nice. But in reality, this is part of the process of how publics come to 
know and understand and then make a decision. And I think that transitions us nicely to the Supreme Court case that we heard arguments for this past week, where a religious baker refused to bake a symbolic cake for a homosexual couple. Could you explain the dynamics of this case for our listeners who may not be familiar with it? This case, the fellow, they came in to get a cake made, a, a couple who was getting married in Colorado. They're a gay couple. And uh, the guy says, I won't do it. I won't make a cake for something I do not believe in, and you can't abridge my freedom of religion, an expression of freedom of religion, because it's kind of a free speech case as well. And then the people on the left in this case says, if you allow people to discriminate, they will. And uh, if you don't allow you, everybody who has a grudge against the gay in terms of employment and everything else against the LGBT group would in fact then be authorized to discriminate. Wow. Do we tell a person that they have to do what the government says? Because this case comes down to the government tells you what you have to do because you're a public business and they tell you what you can and can't say. So I assume this baker has to make the cake for the neo-Nazi getting married and in celebration of white power as well because he'd be compelled by the government to make that cake. That's a really tough one. Uh, I know that I'm supposed to take the position that they ought to, that you can't have that kind of discrimination and government can't allow it. Mm -hmm. But it's also kind of tempting to take the position that the government can't decide who has the power to discriminate and how. So I'm interested in how they consider this cake as speech. I mean, they talk about the artistry of the cake and how the baker is creating something expressive and maybe, in a sense, a part of him. They consider that to be speech, but in reading the arguments of the week, they weren't able to extend that argument to, let's say, the flowers or the florist of the wedding. So in the era, which wasn't very long ago, in which we would not allow gay marriages at any level of government, and even the Democrats had that, that mantra, in that era, if the florist had put a bow on the cake, which said, good luck to the couple, and they and that's again and of course they're getting married I assume almost illegally in that sense in a societal yeah, sense yeah. should that person that the government have the right to censor that and say that you're outside the bounds even though the florist is in celebration as opposed to the wedding I don't know the answer to that I I just think it's really dangerous when we get this the first amendment the first amendment does not stop people from being stupid and saying stupid things. In fact, it protects those. Yep, yep. What the First Amendment does in my mind is it says the government can't decide that. And so with that, which is open to argument, I'll give you that. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for coming on. And stay tuned for our next episode of Podcasts at WFU, which is brought to you by The Media, a student-run digital media group at Wake Forest. This episode was produced by Sebastian Palajero, and music and edits were conducted by yours truly, Jonathan Tratner. <laughs>